Well, um, good evening. Uh, we, we're, in, we're in the second part of a little series we've called They Say, because they say a lot of things. Tonight in particular, I'm going to come right out and say it. They say, where was God when? Fill in the blank. So the title of the nice message is, Do You See What I See? And, and we're going to go through a scripture, we'll do it just now. But before we get there, I wanted to tell you a, a story that's rather embarrassing for me. When I was younger, I, I travelled to France, which is where a lot of South Africans are now, I guess, hoping that they could stay a bit longer until there's a final eventually. <laughs> uh, some of them might want to go home after tonight. Shame. I don't know. I'm not going to watch, to be honest. <laughs> too nervous. <laughs> well, when I, I travelled to France with a big group of people and to sing there. And whenever, wherever we were, you know, you ask everybody if they can speak English, right? And you say, you say like, wherever you go, you go, si parle anglais, si parle anglais, si parle anglais. And if they say oui or no or whatever, then you, now you can have a conversation with this person. I was lost and I was walking around somewhere. I, I got lost somewhere in Paris and I, si parle anglais, until, like, until somebody said oui. And then I said, where's McDonald's? <laughs> because everyone was going to meet at McDonald's. And what he did was he said, it's right over there. So <laughs> I'd sort of missed it in the crowd. Uh, that's not the embarrassing story. So he spent... <laughs> oh, <sorry. laughs> the, the actual more embarrassing story is that for, from all this like two or three weeks of just si parle anglais, si parle anglais, we eventually, you know, we go from Charles de... We, we, we actually don't fly out of Charles de Gaulle Airport. We were going to fly out of Heathrow. So we take, you know, the sea cat over the street of Dover, you know, to the UK. And on a bus. And the first place, we're just going to go to the airport. And, and I go to the airport and I want to exchange some money. So I go... Remember, I'm in the United Kingdom now. Okay. I go and there's a bank there. Something of England, something. And I look at the man behind the glass thingy and I said to him, Si parle anglais? And he said, Of course. <laughs> I said, this is England. <laughs> I'm so sorry. I said, Yes, of course you can speak English. So it's quite embarrassing. And then on the plane back, also, I blamed, I blamed some auntie for her socks being the stinky ones and not mine in Afrikaans. And I found out that she also speaks Afrikaans. <laughs> so that trip for me was a trip, I guess. Uh, but what, what happened was, I was sort of on... Didn't you feel yourself sometimes on autopilot? Just on a bit of autopilot, you're just going through things, almost not noticing when things around you change. And you go through things and you realize that some things affected you uh, too late. Oh, whoops, I didn't know that affected me. And what I want to do tonight is to give you some markers that every single believer needs to have and needs to know uh, when they go through pain, when they go through suffering, difficulty, trials, temptations, tribulations, all these things. Now, how many of you sort of got born and thought, my life, there will never be any pain or tribulation? And you've been correct so far. Anyone? No. <laughs> well, you know, life has got some moments in it that try and terrorize us. And it's, and it's so difficult. So I wanted to give you a few things going to help you in making sense of pain. And that specific thing is going to be, how do we have supernatural sight to see what God sees, not only to see what we're seeing in that moment, 
So we're going to start off with 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 17 and 18. It says the following, For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So he's, he's, he's saying right here and now, these current troubles that you and I are in are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary and what is unseen is eternal. How do we get supernatural sight? How do we see what God sees? Well, we can never really fully understand our suffering in this world. For, for all of us, it's sort of a work in progress, trying to make sense of the things that we've gone through. One day, I guess, we'll, we'll, I believe, we'll receive sort of a full revelation of everything that's happened in a place where suffering no longer exists. Amen? That'll be a great and glorious day. But tonight, I want to give you, and I know last week I gave you a few things to write down. Okay, there were six and then three, and I hope they helped, Okay. This week, I want to give you seven markers. I'll be quick with them, okay? Seven markers that you will need along the way. These are significant and important principles that we all need in order to answer some of life's toughest questions and to help us face some of life's toughest moments. So, um, Sharice and I, as my wife, I showed you a picture of her last week, um, and I don't have a picture of them now, I'm sorry. Uh, I don't want any of the guys to get tempted here, you know. Show my wife. <laughs> um, I could always show off about my children. I thought about showing a video of my of my youngest daughter last night. She was just singing, free free singing, I guess, the whole time. Ah, Jesus is the Holy Spirit. Then she said, and she carries on, and in her song she goes, God loves, God doesn't love the bad guys. And I was like, well, and in the video I interrupt and I say, God loves the bad guys and the good people too. Even the baddies, Jesus died for the baddies. Right? At that point in time, I wanted to give her a lesson. We're all bad. <laughs> right? We all need Jesus. We're all those bad guys. <laughs> because if Jesus had to die for somebody good, why do I have to die if that person's good? Anyway. So, uh, yeah, so <laughs> that was quite interesting. But, you know, Cerise and I, uh, we got married in 2010. We'd been dating since 1467 or something like that, I think. <laughs> so, Sharice and I met in the 90s, my wife, and, and I, apparently, we went to the same church together. I found her rather annoying because she was the Sunday school teacher's daughter and she knew all the answers. She was the person who could, who could name all the books of the Bible in order. Like it was some competition, you get a sticker. I was like, but she's... She's the teacher's daughter. She's going to get a sticker. She's, you know, she's cheating. So she was, you know, as a youngster, rather annoying. And I was rather, what's uh, the right word? Dull. <laughs> and unexciting. Very timid. Yeah, like, here's a lamiki. I was very, sorry, may I please be here? May I please stand here? May I please raise my hands, Lord? You know insecure person and he was this extra confident person and I was and that was foreign to me anyway it was a match made in heaven apparently and and so so we we started dating in the 2000s somewhere early 2000s and and we got married in 2010 and within a year of marriage we were praying and we we're like we actually you know it's our desire to have children and then eight years of praying 
with our children. Eight years, you know. And, and so there was a big journey for us in this, trying to understand, while you're in the middle, what's going on here? This seems to, it's not physical suffering. It's kind of a, how do you grieve something you don't even have yet, you know? So we had to make sense of that. Amongst all of that, my wife's best friend was murdered. And the plan was to kidnap her and murder her too, you know? So, so it was all these questions, the season of, what is going on, God? How, can we see what you see? And it was so difficult, you know? So um, what happened was eventually... We have two daughters now, Nova and Vida, and they're beautiful, stunning. And it took the, that time for God to work with us, for us to be able to see what he sees. And it was difficult because I resisted. And often our walk is difficult, not because it's difficult, but because we resist God's approach. And we quite like our approach. Follow my plan, God, please. My plan's good. I like it. I've planned it my whole life. By the time I was 26, I need two kids so that I'm this age by the time my kids are that age and I can have a life after them as well. All this you know, nonsense chess I was playing with God and boxing him in. But God had other plans. And now I could say God has done far more, immeasurably more than I could have ever asked for, seeked for, prayed for, or imagined. If you met my daughters, you'd agree. <laughs> and... And I just thank God for that, you know. So I wanted to say that, you know, this sort of idea of pain and suffering, difficulty, not understanding what's going on, is not foreign to me. And, you know, I wish there were some things I could share, but maybe only when I'm really, really old could I share some things about what happened in my life. And I've had to make sense of this myself, and I tried to make sense of it. And, and here are seven things that we should all stand upon that gives us firm footing, the first of which is the following. God has authority over all things, not just over some things. We know Genesis 1 verse 1, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So he has authority over all the things that he had created. John 1 verse 1 says that in the beginning was the word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Isn't that powerful? In the Revelation as well, at the end of the Bible, it says that God is the Alpha, the Omega, the one who was, is, and is to come. God is Lord over the beginning of history, over the end of history, and he's also Lord and has authority over everything in between. God has authority over all things. Secondly, God has authority over the lives of believers. That's you and me. Let's read Romans 8.28 to confirm this. It says the following. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed into the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. This all things um, refers to the sufferings of that present time they were in as well. That these all things, know that in all those things that they were in, even in, the Ro in that time when Paul's writing to the Romans, God is working things to the good of those who love him. Have you ever spoken to somebody and they said, it'll work out in the end? Now, I'm about to say something really brave, okay? I say, yes, it will, for those who believe. And I call, that's tough to say for me. 
Because that's what God promises, right? In the end, some things might work out, but in the very end, they work out to the good of those who love him and who is called. God planned for us to be adopted into his household, so he has that authority over our lives. He predestined us to adoption. And he is using all these things, these light and momentary troubles or these current troubles, to the good for us. Isn't that great? I'm going to go through the first four quite quickly. So God has authority over the lives of believers. Here's a big one. God has authority over Satan. And I want to say something really powerful to you today because I don't know if, I think we could say that, but some of, some of our lives as believers, we treat, we treat him as a bit more powerful than we ought to. In Revelation 12, I don't have the scripture on, there's a picture of Satan standing before a woman so that he might destroy the woman's child. And it's a picture to show that God didn't know the plan, oh, sorry, that Satan didn't, have, didn't know the plan God had with this offspring of a woman. Satan's opposition to God's plan to redeem fallen mankind. So Satan does have power. Don't fool yourself into thinking you know what he does and you know how he operates. Don't go there. Don't entertain him. Don't entertain stuff like that. Follow Jesus. Okay? Leave him alone. Satan has power, but he only has as much power as God allows, ultimately for his purposes. Think of Job. Satan was on a leash with Job. So far, not any further. So he's on a leash to accomplish even the purposes of God. Even like the death of Jesus, where Satan thinks, I won. (laughs) He didn't know God's plan, right? It was the very place of Satan's defeat. It's like, I don't know, anybody have siblings? (laughs) What a... Also kind of suffering, I guess. (laughs) You ever, you ever take your sibling's hand and say, stop hitting yourself, stop hitting yourself. <laughs> right, take their hand, stop hitting yourself. <laughs> that's, what, that's what I think Satan's doing, right? He thinks he's, you know, he's got some power, but God just uses his hand to smack, him, to smack Satan on the head with it. So if you ever wanted a picture of Satan, there it is. God's holding Satan's hand, smacking him over the head with it. <laughs> is that helpful? <laughs> Nice picture. Satan is not omniscient. He's not all-powerful. He does not know what God knows. I want to set you free from that. I want to set you free from another thing as well. He does not even know what we know. There's some charismatic circles a long time ago, and some preachers even online that you, you, you can listen to now, who will tell you, Satan's reading your mind. The demons can, no, I have the mind of Christ. Can he read that? No ways. We have the mind of Christ. 1 Corinthians 2.16 says, For who has known the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Awesome. Satan had nailed Jesus to the cross, but didn't even know that that would bring about his ultimate defeat. Awesome. You're protected. Amen. I hope that is liberating for somebody here today. I, I was stuck in that for many years, thinking these demons are reading my mind. You know, I don't want to scare anybody. <laughs> but they can't. You have the mind of Christ. Number four, God has authority over lost people. 
Think about Joseph in the Old Testament. His brothers sold him to slavery. And Judah was the one who said, let's sell this guy rather, don't kill him. Let's sell him, make some money, and we don't have blood on our hands. How noble (laughs) of Judah, right? How noble. But I want you to think about this. Joseph got sent into slavery, and we know this famous verse that happens at the end of Genesis. It's Genesis 50 verse 20, and this is how it all comes together. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good, to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Now, Judah was the one who said, let's sell this guy. But who did God really want to preserve? Joseph or Judah? If you know the word, you'll know that Jesus comes from the line of Judah. And here God is using this fool and his sin to the advantage of you and me today. How great is our God? Isn't that amazing? I think that's so powerful that even there God had so much grace on this person Judah that the, thing, the person he sent was sent to preserve his very life and lineage. Awesome. Even Judas was raised up with God's foreknowledge. God raised up Pharaoh. God raised up Herod. God hardened the hearts of Pharaoh. God has authority over lost people. And that's comforting to us, isn't it? God is seeking them, chasing after them, revealing his love to them, and he has authority over, over them. Now, here's the fifth principle, and it's this. God calls us to remember his faithfulness in times of trouble. The question we have to face with suffering or our difficulty is not the reality of God's sovereignty or his authority or God's love and his kindness. It's this question. What will your response be to what you're going through? Will we respond in a trust in God that he can do whatever he wills for us? Think of the man who... um, who had his son throw himself into the fire and this father just says to Jesus, I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. Or maybe we'll respond in bitterness or anger. And whether we respond in bitterness or anger or running to God, trusting him, will all depend on how good you are at seeing, how good you are with your supernatural sight how well we can see the hand of God in your life. If you look at the situations of the first four, if you look at the situations in your life with those first four principles in mind, then I think you'll have a good start, a good platform, right? We understand that God is sovereign, firstly. It becomes a bit easier to see how he works in our lives. Deuteronomy 5.15 says the following, and God told Moses to recite this and to remember. It says, remember that you were slaves in Egypt and that the Lord your God brought you out out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. I wanted to focus on this word remember because this fifth point is about calling to remembrance his faithfulness in times of trouble. And this act of remembering, this word remember is zakar. It's a Hebrew word. It means 
not only to think to remember something like, oh, I remember when, you know, I was 12 and this happened. Or, ah, I remember the score of the rugby yesterday or something like that. This word is a remembering in order to be active in something. Like I remembered my phone because I need it if I need to call somebody, so I take it with me. I remember Michael's birthday is coming up sometime soon. Not so that I could just remember it in my head, but so I can hug him, wish him a happy birthday, say I love you. I remember my wallet, so I could, it's a phone now, so I guess tap or your watch, if you, if you do that sort of thing. Um, you remember something in order to be active in something. So remembering is part of an activity. Out of my remembering, I do something. The English is just, well, I just remember something in my head, but the Hebrew word that they would have read here, they said recite, is remember in order to stir up some action to do something. And I want to say this, recalling God's faithfulness in the past makes us aware of his faithfulness in the present. It's really helpful, isn't it? Remembering what God has done for us in the past makes us aware of his faithfulness now. To remember something, I, I see a picture when I hear this word remember in scripture. It's to put things back together, to remember, put the members back together. Put the story of your life back together. Remember God's faithfulness. Recite the good things and take an action. Trust him in the present. The first four points established like the sovereignty of God and this fifth point draws us back to how it was worked out for you and me personally in our lives and how we should try and sort of stand on it. So this fifth one is remember his faithfulness. He instructs us, God calls us to remember his faithfulness in times of trouble. And then sixth, I'm doing good for time, I think. Am I going too fast? Is it okay? Am I giving some solid foundation here for everybody to stand upon? We're going somewhere with this as well, okay? And it's good. Number six is God calls us to see things with his vision. So what did the Israelites see when they were escaping Egypt? They were like, ah, Pharaoh's army, the sea in front of us, the wilderness over there. But what did God do? He cleared out Pharaoh's army, he opened the sea, and he gave them manna in the wilderness. But what did the Israelites do? They see a giant, oh, Now, they chose to minimize God's work and to maximize the power of the enemy's work. Have we done that before? Oh, this problem is so huge. And we minimize the power of God. We maximize the strength of this thing in our lives. Don't let your life become the size of your problems. Lift your eyes up. Lift your eyes up. Listen to this. 1 John 4 verse 4. You, dear children are from God and have overcome them, the enemy, and the world. Because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. I knew the scripture when I was younger, but when I went to work, I, was, I did civil engineering for quite a long time, for eight years, not a long time actually, it's a short time. And I, used to, I had this picture in my mind that going to work was like going into under a dark cloud. <laughs> It's just dark. And everyone was just out to get their own thing. People backstabbing me, talking back about me with the directors sort of thing, you know. And you're like, 
oh, this dark cloud, I've got to go in health and safety meetings and oh, money. I did really well in civils, but I, in my head I had this stupid image of a dark cloud at work. <laughs> Just go, go, six o'clock, get to my office, dark cloud. Can't wait to escape, you know. But I read this verse. Who is in me is greater than that thing. So I just zoomed out a little bit and I thought, there are some dark clouds in the world. But I, in me is something above that. Greater than that. Reigning over that. And I then realized I have the power to influence this. I have the power to influence this culture. I needed to see things differently to have God's vision. Let's look at the scripture we started with. 2 Corinthians 4, 17 to 18. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes, not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. This, this word fix our eyes and seeing in uh, the Greek here that was used is where we get the word scope from, telescope, microscope, to be able to see something that the naked eye cannot see is to gaze at something intently or to really focus on something that you can't see. It's to see something that can't be seen with natural vision. Two people can go through the same set of circumstances yet have totally different experiences because one is seeing with these eyes, the other one is using the telescope of God. Two types of vision, natural sight, Supernatural sight. The opposite of faith is not doubt. Like I said last week, if you've ever doubted, let me put you to ease, we all doubt, it's okay. The opposite to faith is not doubt. The opposite to faith is sight. It's to look at your current circumstance, your life around you, and make your decisions based on that. That is not walking by faith, that is walking by sight. Walking by faith is to go, God, show me what you see in this situation. Um, so that's a really powerful distinguishing to make in your life. Are you walking by sight in the natural? Or you're saying, God, give me that telescope vision so I can see what you see. David was quite amazing in this. He, he said in Psalm 27, I would have lost heart I would have given up, he says, unless I believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait on the Lord, he says, be of good courage, and he shall strengthen your heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. One of the ways in which we gain sight, this spiritual vision, is to wait upon God. Spend your time with him in worship. Wait upon him, serve him. In a faith, this faith seeing is being persuaded of God's goodness here and now. Faith expects clearly to see that goodness here and now. And faith is the expectation and belief which sustains the life of every believer. So instead of seeing in order to believe, we should learn, like David, to believe in order to see. He said, unless I had believed to see it, yeah, I would have missed it, he says, I would have lost heart. I would have given up. So we would never know true refreshment, true spiritual sight 
or any comfort in God if we want to see first and then believe. We'd be full of doubts the whole time, more doubts. We'd be distracted with fears if we do not learn the sacred art of believing, although we do not see, or even believing in spite of what we see, or believing in order that we might see. That's the one. Fully expecting that sight would inevitably follow if our faith were but simple and true. So we believe and then we see. So Paul says we must develop this fix your eyes, scope, vision, singular in focus. And then we'll have this piercing and accurate sight. And I wanted to make this statement. It's, um, I don't know if, if, if I've got it on there. The only those statement. Ah, they've got my old notes. I wanted to say this. Only those who can see what God is doing through the events can make the right responses to the events. Only those who can see what God is doing through the events can make the right responses to the events. Paul is talking about this current situation, that he's, we've got to fix our eyes on Jesus, this light and momentary trouble. So spiritual vision has these first four points, right? Where we spoke, God has authority over all things, over all believers, over Satan, and even over lost. We are not victims. Some people think that God might be punishing them by some of the suffering in their life, that God has forgotten them. But I want to challenge that Satan, saying maybe we forget God. Some people respond such bitterness and anger sometimes to this situation that I feel like the bitterness and anger in them is more devastating than the thing that caused some suffering in the first place. That's truly a tragedy because they fail to exercise spiritual vision and they do not remember. Joseph somehow kept his vision. Then lastly, the last point that we all have to stand upon, first six and then this one, God has a plan. God has a plan. He has a plan that he is working out in the midst of our suffering. We might know some you know, some or little or none of what God is doing, but God is not on medication. He doesn't have a headache. He doesn't sleep nor slumber. He never gets worried. He's never out of control. He has authority over all things. Your and my trials are not random events. When we are under attack or pain, our first response should be to ask, how do I work with God in the midst of this? How do I work with God in the midst of this? Is he drawing me close to him? Is he dealing with me in an area of disobedience? Can I see a bigger plan, God? We pray. Is my testing part of something bigger? But however, here's a disclaimer. God is not the source of our suffering in this world. Our rebellion is what allowed sin and suffering into the world. And Satan then leverages that rebellion and that sin for his purposes. But God even uses that for good. So sometimes we have suffering that's not God's cause and not even your cause. It's just the cause of a fallen world. But Satan will leverage that thing to try and make you bitter and anger, angry, bitter and angry. But God can even use that circumstance for his good and for your good. He holds us 
Listen to Hebrews 12, 11. It says this. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Discipline brings maturity and peace. I'm not saying that all suffering is God disciplining you. Don't get me wrong. God didn't, you know, you know, have some things happen in my life, both, you know, the Charisse's tragedy of the murder of her best friend and our infertility for eight years. Ah, just so you can teach me a lesson, God. I don't think so. I think that's a cheap exchange. I think God is showing how he can take those things that was not his cause and work them for the good because he has authority over it all. God will use trials in the case in this case, to show you that he is there. We should be more fearful of missing God or disobeying God than we are of going through suffering. Sometimes we're so scared of going through some suffering because we're afraid that God might not show up. I want to be vulnerable here. As a father, I realize that there's something as post... KJ, help me. Postpartum depression for a dad as well. So a lot of ladies go through that after the, you know, they've given birth. There's sort of this postpartum depression. But I found that sinking in for both of my children's lives around about when they were between one and two. Because the first year of a child's life, they sort of bond with mama. And then when they can start to do stuff, bond with dada, right? So as soon as that bond started to form, this fear became so real, all-consuming, and so terrifying. God, what would happen if, if something happened to one of my children? Would I shake my fist at you, God? Would I be bitter and angry? And for a time, I thought I would be, to be honest. It was tough to come to terms with. I couldn't make sense of it. I thought, if that happened, I don't know if God would show up. I don't even know if I could believe that that was God showing up at all. Overcoming fear through suffering is often the beginning of our usefulness to God. And it makes us less fearful of anything other than God himself. What we ought to fear is God's sovereignty, love him and worship him, and not fear the things outside of him. But sometimes we get them upside down, don't we? We fear everything else except God. As where the word says, fear God. And not the word of man or what they can do who can destroy your body. So it's tough to reconcile, isn't it? So how do we discern what God's doing when times are tough? What do we do? If we have a right heart towards God, some friends, some prayer, and after the dust settles, and you're truly honest, some of us would say maybe, I'd never want to go through that again. Wow, but I'm glad I did because of what God did in me. God is there. And here's my final picture I want to leave with you. This is not easy. Um, I have a friend who was abused as a child. And um, yeah, for a long time. And when we're talking about it, you often ask, where was Jesus when this is happening? Where was Jesus when my mom had cancer? Where was Jesus when my wife's best friend was murdered? Where was Jesus? 
Where was Jesus when my friend was being abused? And upon asking him, he said, well, it's sort of the picture we all have, isn't it? Jesus standing there, he's with us, he's with us. And I sort of never took comfort by that picture because it looks too idle. It looks too pedestrian for Jesus. It's a story of a guy who got asked this question too. And they prayed and said, let's pray now. Let's actually see where Jesus is in this moment. This person started crying. This person was also abused and said, the person asked a question, where's Jesus? The guy answered, Jesus is being abused. Jesus had cancer in his body for my mom. Matthew 25 verse 40 says this, and the king will say, I'll tell you the truth, when you did it to one of the least of these my brothers and sisters, you're doing it to me. He is the man in the fire in the Old Testament. He doesn't take them out of the suffering. He bears their suffering. He is the man of suffering. That the sin that was done against us, Jesus bore that in his body. And whatever was done to you and me was done to Jesus himself. So Hebrews can say that we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. He knows our pain. And that he even, in his body, bore the sin not only of the things done against you and I, but the sinful people who did things that were wrong. Remember the song my daughter sang? God doesn't love bad people. I was like, no, God loves bad people too. That's the power of the cross. Do you see what I see? God is asking us. Do you see where I am? God is asking us in the midst of our suffering. Can we stand together? I want to pray about this. And I know it's quite serious. We'd like to go watch the rugby soon. But I felt this so heavily upon my heart this entire week they want to take a moment just to minister into it for, for a few minutes. There will be people up front who can pray for you. There are prayer cards on the side. We pray through every single prayer card. If there's something that you can't reconcile, write a prayer card. We want to pray with you. Prayer is a great weapon. If you want to pray with somebody, you don't have to tell them what's going on, what you can't reconcile. Come pray here in front. We stand with you and just say, God, can you, can you let us see what you see? Let's close our eyes for a moment. Father, there are truly terrible things, I guess, that happen in this world. And some of it we won't know until we see you face to face. We won't be able to explain it. But Lord, we take such deep comfort in your love. Jesus, that in your body... Our pain and our suffering was known. I just wanted to pray for people who, who's on autopilot because things have been happening to you and you just shut off. God is sovereign over it all. God, would you show 
every person in this room that is bearing with unanswered question, would you, would you just give them the sight to, to see what you see? Do you bring them comfort in this moment and in the trials that they have faced and maybe not reconciled yet? Would you give them comfort now, in this moment, Holy Spirit? And would you show us and give us the faith to know that you are working all these things to our good, that that which Satan tried to leverage against us, you are using for our good and for your glory. As hard as that may seem, Father, would you let us submit our hearts before you? Because they say sometimes, where was God? But now we know you bore our pain right there where we were. For that we say thank you, Jesus. Thank you. For us on our journey, I pray that we would be able to shed light and bring a lamp to the feet of those people who face difficult questions around us, that we would point them to these seven foundations. You reign over it all. And that we bring a word of comfort to those who need it. That we would be a shoulder to cry on for those who need it. That we would be the person who says, I don't know what to say when there is nothing to say. Would you send us into a broken world, Lord, to declare that you ran over it all and are working all things to the good of those who love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much, everybody. I know it's quite serious, but if you need some prayer up front here, and, and please write a prayer card if you need us to pray for you. There's coffee and the Fijian game, I think, at the, uh, in, coffee, in, in Warehouse 1. See you there.